Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. My next guest is my friend, Trisha Eastman. Trisha is a world bridger, an initiated traditional medicine woman. She's an author and the advocate for the psychedelic movement. And she's the founder of NGO Ancestral Heart. I've been knocking around these healing worlds for a while now. And I can honestly say that Trisha is one of the few people out there who has really consistently been fighting this fight and doing this work. She's the real deal, and I'm delighted to welcome her here today. Hi, Trisha. Hey. I'm so excited to have you here on this podcast. It's taken me what feels like half a lifetime to, to get you to come on. Not that you haven't been willing, but I know that you're extremely busy, and um, I couldn't have a better guide. We couldn't have a better guide into the world of Iboga. I know you're extremely experienced as a medicine woman um, in this world that few people really know that much about. And I'm really hoping that in the next hour, we can cover all aspects or most aspects. We can't cover all, but most aspects of Iboga for people who want to know about its healing properties, its healing potentials, its, its drawbacks, its side effects, its history. So no pressure, Trisha, <laughs> but let's go. What is Iboga? Oh my God, Iboga. I mean, first of all, it's the most incredible, amazing world. So incredible and amazing that I have dedicated my life in service to it. And every single day that I connect with it or the force of it, which is a incredibly powerful force, it's considered the Mount Everest of all psychedelics. It's not your, let's start off and, you know, do our first psychedelic experience. This is for the true hardy mountain climbers who want to drive deep into the shadow. They want to really, truly excavate. And I will say that if you're not ready for that, then it can also feel like being dropped off at the deep end of the pool without a life jacket. And also another reason why it's so important for the care, the guidance, and doing your homework and your research and taking your time to really understand if this is a journey to embark on. And Iboga comes from a unique region of Africa, in Central Africa, in this tiny little country called Gabon, which is the size of Colorado. So it's a tiny place. And in this country is really the only place that this plant grows in the entire world. Now, you will find some Iboga on the outskirts of Cameroon, as well as um, in the Congo Basin as well. But the thing about Gabon is that it is the national treasure. So it's been very protected. And it takes about a minimum of seven years for this plant to mature. And when I mean mature, for the alkaloids in the plant to have um, acquired a medicinal benefit. 
Now, the older the plant is, the wider, the wiser, sorry, it is. And the more time it, you know, it's kind of like really great wine. Over time, those alkaloids really develop. So if you were to take a young wood, it might be and in no means is Iboga ever a bratty teenager. It's a wise grandfather. But in comparison of, of how you would feel on the journey, the young plant might whip you around a little bit more and kind of be a little bit more mischievous as where the wise old grandfather plant is, is going to you know feel like this, this grandfather is kind of guiding you and not saying it's not going to be hard either, but there is a, a distinctive difference in how those alkaloids develop, which have a very special relationship with the jungle. You use the word wood. Is that is that applied to the plant? Yeah. The so, sorry, I'm using <laughs> lingo that I'm so used You've got to. to break down this lingo. Yeah. So yeah. so in this plant is when I when I started I was under the um, impression there was about 30 alkaloids. I read some different research papers. My husband, Dr. Joseph Barsulia, has published, uh, written and published a few research papers on abogaine and iboga. And in these studies, they found there was about 30 known alkaloids. And now we're discovering in further research, new alkaloids being discovered. So now, from what my understanding is, it's about 80 known alkaloids. And what's interesting is all of these alkaloids work on every neurotransmitter system in the body, everything. And obviously the most um, well-known is the alkaloid abogaine. Abogaine makes up 50% of the alkaloid profile in the plant. And so just to answer your question about the wood, I wanted to give a little backstory. So the root of the plant is pulled out of the ground. And this is done carefully with prayer, with divination. The divination is, do I have permission to take this plant? And like if you are in Gabon and 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 you are in the jungle and you're doing an initiation, there will be a Nima who gives initiations and he will go to the plant and he will say, you know, this is Jane Garnet and she is here for these reasons, she's coming for an initiation and she is asking permission to have this plant and, um, and a divination will be made. Usually um, what I've seen is um, a leaf is laid on the hand and smacked like this. And if it pops, it means it's a yes. And then they take the root out and uh, shave off the top layer. And then the next layer, the inner layer of the bark is shaved. And then that's laid out in the sun to be dried. And what you get is this kind of, it looks like sawdust. It looks like wood chips. And it has the same texture, but it's the most bitter thing you've ever tasted in your entire life. To the point that many people have trouble holding it down. There's a book that um, Daniel Pinchbeck wrote called Breaking Open the Head. And in that book, he talks about his experience with Iboga. And the breaking open the head means they literally keep giving you wood till you can't give wood anymore. And I actually had a friend that went and had an initiation and he could not hold down any more wood. And so they put it in the other side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. 
<laughs> Someone literally is breaking open the head. It's like they're determined to break over, open our heads. You know, I mean, if anything could scrub out your intestines, man. I mean, that it's like it's it's this sawdusty, woody thing that just it cleans everything out. So is that the goal, Trisha? Is the goal to clean everything out, break open the head? Like in, in layman's terms, well, let's talk about, I mean, it's being used in different ways in different settings, it seems. But in Gabon, what is the general use for Iboga? Well, the general use for Iboga in Gabon specifically is that it is an initiatory rite. And there are many different kinds of initiatory rites and celebrations and um, specific rituals where iboga is used. And um, in many of the traditions that I've been initiated, not all of them, there's many different ways of working with iboga. There are two nights of ceremony. And in those two nights, which are this, you know, kind of similar to the breaking open the head that I described, um, the first night is usually considered the death and the second night is uh, considered the rebirth. So it's this first you enter as an initiate. And when you're an initiate, you come in and you leave everything behind, including your name, which means that you get a new name, which is a Banzi. And Banzi means to hatch. So it's like a new baby chick being born. And in many of these lineages, when you do an initiation, and this doesn't happen in a psycho-spiritual rite, you know, such as going to a retreat center in Costa Rica and working with Iboga, but when you're going into an initiation where specific ancestors from that lineage are being called in, um, you are given a name. And your name is your name of your soul. It's called your, your kumbo. Interestingly, some of these initiations, the point of the entire initiation is to receive your name because you don't know who you are until you truly knew your name. One initiation, Mumbayano, is an initiation where you reconnect with your soul. And um, the big piece around this reconnection to the soul is that we have to be in full alignment and connection with our souls in every moment of the day. So it's this understanding of how do we anchor that awareness that we're so deeply connected with our soul that it can never be severed. So when you're in Gabon, you're given a lantern and that lantern has kerosene, which by the way, does not smell that great, especially because you have to have it by your head when you're sleeping at night. Um, but you take it with you to the bathroom. You take it with you everywhere you go. And if you forget it somewhere, you get scolded. Someone in the village sees you and they catch you not remembering your soul, then then you get in trouble. Uh, the, lan the lantern is the soul. So I'm going to just pop out for a second into yes. kind of a, a snapshot. And I want to get more into your personal history with this, but snapshot, who were you before these soul initiations? Who are you now after these soul initiations? Well, I would say that when I came into the journey, I had done a lot of spiritual practice. 
I definitely am neurodivergent and have ADD. So being succinct is not my my strong point. But I um, definitely noticed a difference in how my mind functioned, how clear I was, how easy it was for me to connect. And the fast change in my connection to my intuition, my connection to being able to direct and manifest in my life, just, you know, kind of switched on like a light switch. When I first discovered Iboga, it was at an Abogaine clinic in Mexico called Crossroads in Baja. And I came there because I had severe eating disorders and I had worked with ayahuasca. I had worked with many other plant medicines. I have been, you know, I worked at a psychedelic bookstore when I was in college. I've gone to so many raves. I've, I've taken enough psychedelics that I kind of was like, okay, it's not happening over there um, until I came to Iboga. And for the first time, I was able to fully love and accept myself. And I will say that I've had physical changes in my body that I could have never imagined. What do you mean? Like what kind of thing? I mean, like when I had these eating disorders, my my weight just went up and down and all these crazy things. And it might have been kind of a side effect of the spiritual awakening process, but my skin was breaking out and I didn't even have um, breakouts in my teens, but I had like acne as an adult and um, the aboga cleared everything. I want to circle back to the eating disorder and you said, I think, Iboga taught me to love myself. Mm-hmm. It brings up sort of two general questions to me. And, you know, one is, is an eating disorder just a lack of self-love? One question. Two, how does a plant teach one to love oneself? I would say that eating disorders are separation. It's, it's a separation from self. It's a lack of connection. And, um, and I feel that the medicines reconnect. We see that with the brain, with the neural connections, the neural plasticity. But the level at which um, Iboga can do that is just on another, you know, scale in terms of traumatic brain injury, the studies that have been done with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, all of these different things. And yes, we know the power of our minds and how actually these these are all symptoms of something else inside. And that something else inside is always related to love because any corner of ourselves that's exiled and, and pushed away and neglected um, and unworthy, that's a disconnect. And so it's like once we welcome those pieces back in, for me, I feel like the aboga allowed me to step free from the prison of my body, meaning that here's this body that isn't perfect. Here's this body that is doing things I don't want it to do, like gaining weight. And, you know, I feel like I was so restricted by how much I was thinking about like my physical appearance. And, and the reality is the aboga showed me that you're not that. I knew I wasn't that, but I didn't truly, truly feel that sense of release of separation where I could really feel that union with the cosmos, not like the 5-MeO-DMT where you have no ego, but being here as myself and being like, I'm you 
I'm this desk, I'm the whole movie. And I mean that from the sense it's all one web of life. And just to feel that and breathe with that, I just had tears. And I'm like, if I, if I love all of these things out here, then why am I not loving this right here? This is the same. Absolutely. And uh, it's actually bringing to mind my personal introduction to Iboga. And I remember seeing this uh, intake form that the mystic in charge had sort of put together on me. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, looking into a rather difficult mirror. And one of the things um, that he, in his assessment, I was suffering from was, and I remember the words very clearly, a subtle sense of separation with herself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really understand that at the time, although it did sort of in a creepy way resonate, but I didn't understand it. And then what my journey showed me amongst many things were all the feelings that I wasn't fully feeling and the feelings that members of my family weren't fully feeling and all the places where we were sort of hiding things and covering up again in subtle ways. One image I got in the journey was um, of, of everything being kind of overladen with cream, like there was too much cream on top of the cake and there was too much cream all over everything. And, and that referred to um, sort of that British kind of charm and that thing that I have in, in my family, my, my mother's line, where we all, we're just so lovely about everything, where we might underneath be seething with rage, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is kind of comes from from wartime, you know, stoicism and and many other things and, and you know, messages to women to to be decorative and lovely. Yes. <laughs> still try to be. I mean, I don't think it's all bad, but I but not feeling your feelings or not knowing your feelings, not knowing them, not feeling them does lead to a sense of separation with self and with the world. I mean, how can we be in full congruence if we're not allowing ourselves to be as we are? And it seems to be a very strangely human predicament that we turn against ourselves. And if we could crack that code, I think we'd be in business as a species. Yeah. No, I feel the biggest thing that I see with people working with people is this lack of connection to our emotion. And I think the primary reason besides, I mean, the fact that you know, we've never been trained and we've had so much conditioning in the opposite direction, as you were sharing, is that I think our society just moves way too fast. And the biggest change I've experienced with Iboga is really that space in between to kind of work things out that you don't have to keep moving and doing, but like really carefully walking and checking in and realizing in this life movie that we're in, there's so much of it that we don't notice. And the Iboga is the funniest of all comedians and tricksters and has the most incredible sense of humor. And what I find is that it's in these little details when you really slow down and you pay attention that you realize how interconnected everything is. Mm. Yeah. And then also just a lot of, you know, this, these patterns of running, it's like the minute that you slow down, you're like in your 
root chakra. You can feel your, you know, you can breathe into your psoas and you're just like in your body and you're like, what the hell was I running from? <laughs> anyway, right. well, why, why was about? I trying to get away from this? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much it takes to to slow down. And this whole conversation is reminding me of this this you know weekend where I took a bogo and it blew my mind. And and between the death night, the first night, and the rebirth night, um, we had some sort of time off, quote unquote, time off. You know, I mean, I was freaking out. I couldn't believe how intense the whole experience was. Um, we were in Boulder, Colorado, and I went for a walk and was kind of hanging out with this like 11 year old girl. And it was very sweet. You know, I was just noticing how amazing the nature was around there. And I started really looking at things, you know, little details of things the way I used to as a child. Um, I was getting back into the, the eyes of the child and I started watching this tiny spider. I can't remember what they're called, those tiny ones. I want to say a money spider, but it was a <laughs> tiny, tiny spider. And it was what do you call repelling? Hang gliding, I can't remember what it's called, but, um, you know, it was, it was traveling down along this one single thread, this kind of shimmering thread down, down, down. And I was watching this tiny little detailed thing and it was amazing. And suddenly I saw the Buddha's face inside the spider. Oh. And the spider was, I, I've never seen the Buddha before. Okay. This is <laughs> so nuts. And I don't know if I've even shared this before. Oh. It was like, you know, it's smaller than the head of a match. And the face bloomed out. I'm getting chills as I talk about this. The face of the Buddha bloomed out. And it was so beautiful. I've never seen anything that beautiful. It was so rich. And I, I you know, I like called out. I said to the girl, come over here. And of course, it was gone by the time I looked at <laughs> But wow. And I, I mean, that was crazy because it wasn't even, I didn't think I was kind of under the influence, you know, I was sort of just, I mean, I was feeling a bit wrecked from the night before, but gosh, I don't know what to say, but the whole, the whole experience to me was the experience of being in a, in a very, very, in the presence of a very, very superior intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. I mean, in Bwiti, we call there's a word that we use, um, very common, and I'm sure you're familiar, basse, which means truth. And really, the, the voice and the intelligence that is behind this medicine is the purest channel of truth. It feels like the cosmic truth that essentially breathes through the web of life. In, there's, there's some really interesting lines of study um, things that I love to nerd out on, like I don't know if you're familiar with Power Versus Force by David R. Hawkins. Mm. Used um, applied kinesiology, which is muscle testing, which essentially is reading how energy, how life force energy, we all have kundalini in our bodies. We all have this sexual energy flowing in our bodies. And when we're aligned in that web of life, we're actually like plugged in, we're getting fed the energy. But when we're not, that energy drops. And so the applied kinesiology can actually test that. And there's like a, a scale of consciousness. And within that scale, this is something David R. Hawkins took a team of, of people trained, psychologists, doctors, and, you know, showed that these are negative emotions such as anger, grief, fear. Here's where they rank. And it was like low, like below 250. 
And then let's look at the spiritual writings of Yogananda and the um, Upanishads and all of these ancient spiritual texts. And they would go up higher and higher up to like a thousand. And, you know, some were less high of a vibration, probably like the King James Version of the Bible, which has been edited a little bit. And and what I think is interesting about that is I feel that Iboga is essentially that fire hose of that, that truth that comes through everything. And interestingly, the way I've seen, and, you know, this is just, when we talk about the cartography of this like collective psyche, whatever you want to call it, super conscious, there's many layers to it. You know, it's so different because it's a um, archetypal realm and, and there's so many different ways you can see it. But the way that I was shown was essentially that our souls are a fractal of this greater soul that goes all the way up to kind of, if you looked at it from the scale of consciousness, the most pure source of consciousness. And interestingly, in Iboga, there's this, I like to call it like Marco Polo way, you know, that that the medicine can dialogue. And one of the the trainings that um that I received from some of my teachers in Gabon um, in different lineages is how to communicate with the aboga to help the individual to connect to their soul. So sometimes that happens through having someone prepare questions in advance. And um, what's interesting about those questions and in, in having the individual ask the question, they're actually asking themselves, like a, a fractal aspect of self, but they're getting back this answer that is the most pure truth. And as the witness, as the person standing there with the candle, helping to say, okay, the next question, ask this, you know, uh, I can hear the truth in it. I get the goosebumps from when those answers are, you know, coming through. And I mean, I've sat with hundreds of people and, and experienced this where every single time it never ceases to amaze me. So would you say that the main result that you're seeing, positive result of a boga, is people being more aligned with themselves and their sole purpose? I would say more aligned with themselves in the way that they operate. It's the lens for which they see the world and how they approach the world. It doesn't necessarily mean you know your purpose, because I believe purpose is something like when you are a caterpillar, which I think of as the ego, and the butterfly, where you're living in full soul orientation, there's this cocooning phase where you're changing so much and restructuring so much inside that it would actually harm you in the process to know too much about the next steps. And people are always looking for certainty in that process. So I, I, I only say, yeah. I guess you could say purpose if in that particular phase, your purpose is to be in the liminal cocoon, but you may not be fully aware of that until after the experience that, oh, those three years of my life, maybe it's not that long, but, you know, it can be one year, three months. Yeah, I see that the, the time frame certainly varies to probably all the results. I mean, for me, 
what Iboga did for the first good year was actually just stopped me in my tracks. I mean, <laughs> boy, was it frustrating, you know, someone who likes to move fast. Yeah. I suddenly found I really couldn't do anything pretty much. I mean, I could just about function, you know, keep my work going, keep the kids going, but that was it. No more. No more looking ahead. No more, you know, flying at life in multiple directions simultaneously, which I, is something I've now defaulted to again, but <laughs> I need to take a burger again. But yeah, it definitely gave me a different experience and it saw, it, it showed me that I'd been going too fast. And to, to kind of compensate, it made me then go too slow. And then over time, I kind of adjusted. But, but what it had given me as well was kind of a glimpse at sort of my dreams you know, really dreams that I'd sort of tried to get away from because they felt really impractical, Mm. (laughs) you know, and painful in certain ways. And they were brought up to me in in no uncertain terms. And basically like, this is who you are. Mm. This is what you want. Too bad. You might as well do it. Yeah. It's like, oh shit, busted. Um, The truth again. And um, yeah, and I feel like Iboga gave me a map that, you know, I'm still sort of, trying to move forwards on and, and probably always will be. Um, so I don't, yeah, back to it's not for the, it's not for the faint of heart because seeing, even seeing your purpose doesn't mean that it's, it's easy. And actually um, doing research for this Aboga movie, Lucy Walker's Aboga movie um, a while ago, you know, brought me into contact with a lot of people in the Aboga community. And I had thought, well, this plant is so enlightened that all these people are going to be so enlightened and I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be like talking to all these people who just like know how to live. And they're just, I'm just going to want to hang out with these people. This is my new career and stuff like that. And I did meet some great people. And what I noticed about the people in general to generalize massively, they all felt like they were switched on and, and in connection with their heart. So they were definitely all felt very alive. I will say that. Were they sorted out? They were not. Mm-hmm. They figured it all out. They had not. I mean, in short, they were still humans, but also I think that there's quite a lot of drama in the world of Iboga. Um, and without, you don't have to, you know, say anything that would, would make you uncomfortable, but <laughs> what is the deal with that? Why is the drama in the world of Iboga? I mean, why is the drama in the entire psychedelic movement? <laughs> I mean, totally. uh, I feel that these medicines have a mind of their own. They are, in essence, the feminine energy, which is wild and untamed. It's also, you know, can be beastly and like Kali and burn you and destroy you. And and I feel that these really complex ancestral systems that have been essentially downloaded over many lifetimes and practiced and perfected are there to create this kind of scaffolding to help the medicine. And I feel that a lot of that has been kind of thrown to the wayside in the psychedelic movement. Think about how um, Iboga came to the West. Iboga came to the West as a gift. And Howard Lutzoff had discovered Iboga in the form of Abogaine. He was given a laboratory sample and he realized that he had been suffering from opiate addiction, that it relieved his cravings 100%, which has you know, been proven many times over that um, Abogaine is an um, addiction interrupter and you don't have to go through the god-awful, horrible 
detox and many, most of the time, unsuccessful um, detoxes from opiates without those withdrawal symptoms. So what happened was he, you know, became obsessed with Abogain. He went to Gabon and um, got special permission and Dr. Uh, Gasita literally got him the first medicine, Iboga plant, which he extracted the, the alkaloid Abogain from to start doing research. And then it came to the West. It was never legalized because safety protocols had not been made. Um, in Buiti, there are quite, there's quite a, a significant amount of protocols that ensure safety. And there are cardiac risks with Abogain and Iboga. But, you know, starting off just with this vial of Abogain and now an extract of Abogain he went into it blind. He had a death that caused some red flags that kind of created some issues with maybe getting things forward through the FDA as a potential treatment. I see. So one of, one of the people uh, experimenting with Ibogaine died from, was it cardiac arrest? Yeah. One of the, the patients who saw Howard Letzoff when he was starting to work with it, and then um, it ended up kind of going in underground into a lot of clinics in Mexico. I worked at an Abigail clinic in Baja, Mexico, um, in Canada, and other places where it wasn't regulated. But a lot of the people opening these clinics were kind of like these Wild West, um, you know, coming out of it because, I mean, they had been healed by this plant. They had their lives to owe to this plant and, and they wanted other people to receive that healing. And so they opened up these clinics, but there was never really anything. I mean, now there's been so much research over these 50 years since all of that happened. But also in that period, you know, there's just been a lot of like recklessness that has happened in the, in the space. And so, yeah, it is a little bit of a, a wild space without medicine. Yeah. I mean, I guess the medicine itself is a, is a wild ride. And then, yeah, gosh, I guess there are some, some wild folks coming to it as well, which brings me to, so, so you've got the, I mean, we've been talking about the kind of, in a way, we've been talking about it in a kind of holistic way. We've been talking about the, the aboga plant, the whole plant, and this kind of awakening, soul awakening process. I know that Ibogain, I guess, is that that's the extract of iboga is used as an addiction interrupter in clinics. So they don't use the whole plant in clinics. Is that correct? So, um, okay, we talked earlier about this idea of breaking open the head. Um, to get the concentration of pure abogain to be able to do a flood dose to detox and reset the kappa opioid receptors, you would have to eat a lot of wood. And you probably, you might even die from that experience because you would have had to eat so much wood. And so really that concentration of that flood dose of pure alkaloid of abogain is wholly designed to reset. And interestingly, a lot of the other alkaloids actually are quite beautiful in, in, in like ibogaline, for example, is what gives you this visionary experience, which as you know, there's this, um, there's many kinds of visions you can have on iboga, but, um, one is like this screen popping up. And I always see kind of these very analog, but like pastel 3d images that kind of 
have these ways of kind of appearing and disappearing and um but um, that's that alkaloid. So when you take the abogaine, you're getting more of the purgative effect. You're getting more of the cleansing. And this medicine is such a deep purgative. I mean, the primary purpose in Gabon is purification. And so it's this idea of cleaning oneself. And the word in Buiti that's used is mabondo, which means grace. So you come to initiation for Mubondo. And what happens is it opens this doorway. And this is incredible after you have, you know, for many years been addicted to heroin or opiates. And all of a sudden, um, this doorway opens where you feel amazing. Your mind is completely silent. The journey could have been horrific either way with the plant or with Abogaine. Is it pretty similar in terms of the difficulty? Ibogaine and Iboga? It can be very different. I mm. would say that I feel a little bit more held. I feel like kind of that diversity of all of the alkaloids and, and it kind of creating a more holistic feel as where, you know, I feel the Ibogaine on its own, although it can be really powerful, it's it's a little bit shorter of a journey, but it's it's got this very intensity of coming on and, um, you know, just immediately encouraging. It's like, I don't got a lot of time to work in here. So I'm just going to get to work. And it's like in there getting to work. But afterwards, I mean, whether you work with Iboga or Abogaine, you're going to have this window of like three months. Literally, the Abogaine is stored in your fat cells. So you're getting like microdoses of it every day. It's in your body and it's allowing you to make the changes in your life that are going to really stay. And so that's when the Mabondo is. If you are in um, Gabon, in this village, that can give you the opportunity to make big lifestyle changes that could change the trajectory of your family and your life and, and how great of a life you live. Yeah. And it seems in terms of breaking addiction that that's a really important part of it. Because I've heard stories of, you know, people having to go back after two years. I've also heard stories of people never having to go back. And it seems like the people who never had to go back really. Um, made huge changes within that sort of very early post iboga or began phase where they, you know, they moved to another country, they changed jobs, they, you know, you, you take yourself completely out of the old ruts um, and really, really take advantage. I, I remember the, the mystic that I worked with <laughs> would repeatedly say, leap like a rock star into your new life, which <laughs> I loved, you know, this idea of just like going for it, you know, and really taking advantage because I guess these are very sort of dramatic moments. You might as well really kind of capitalize on them. So let's talk about danger because I think that's probably, you know, foremost on people's minds when they consider this. What do you need co to consider in terms of danger and how do you avoid the dangers or, or can't you? I mean, there's a lot of different drug interactions. So obviously doing a proper screening to make sure that the drugs that you're on, which I mean, spend half the podcast talking about, so I won't, I won't give you the whole list. Um, I mean, the, the medicine even interacts with grapefruit juice. Um, it's, it's a QT prolonger. And what that means is it lengthens the heartbeat, but slows the heart rate down. So what's recommended is that you have an EKG. With my team, we have a doctor that looks at the EKGs and knows how to identify. I mean, he can tell if someone does cocaine. Like he can tell just by, I'm like, 
how do you see that? Where do you see that? But um, looking at that EKG, I mean, there are, I mean, we've done a ton of work with like a lot of special ops, Navy SEALs over the years. And sometimes they're so fit that they're almost too fit to do Iboga because their resting heart rate is so low that if that QT interval slows down, it can actually put them in a place where their heart could stop. And in an emergency situation, if that happened, there are many medical interventions. Um, The music itself is an intervention. So the polyrhythmic dance beats actually are right at that heartbeat. So it's like keeping the heart rate going. In traditional Bwiti ceremonies, it's very common to get up at different times and dance or be sitting up in the ceremony on like benches rather than laying down, depending on the type of initiation. And that's all things to kind of keep the blood flow going, to keep the the circulation moving. You know, I would say like, if you have pre-existing things, this might not be the best medicine to jump into because on one side of the coin, it really brings you into your shadow. On the other side of the coin, like you said, it can amplify that shadow so much that sometimes it's it's just too much to to handle. God, it's such an interesting plan. I want to talk about the bigger picture. Let's talk about sustainability. Should we even be should we be taking it over here? Taking it, taking mm. it and taking it. Should we be just taking and taking and taking and taking? What do you think? What what's going on? But give us the give us the picture. Ugh. I know there's some drama around this as well. It's such a hard question. When you speak to elders, they never see things as black and white. And so I hate to give an answer that sounds mm. black and white on something as as complex as this situation. Because number one, the plant wanted to find its way over here. It wanted to find us, specifically Westerners, because we really needed this healing. We really needed this detox. And I feel like all the plants were just like, we got to jump out of the jungle and we got to get these people because they're going to destroy us. We got to like shake them up, you know? Otherwise, we're not going to be around anymore. All the plants will be gone and everything will be gone. With that being said, I feel that the Bwiti is something to be shared. It's it's an initiatory rite. Once you're initiated into Bwiti, um, you become Bwiti. And it's not, it has nothing to do with the color of your skin. It has nothing to do with your heritage. People from all over Africa, all over Europe, all over the world get initiated. And when it's done properly, it's done through an initiation. It's not done for commercial purposes. It's it's typically a divination is done. And that divination in asking, is this person ready? Is this person someone that should be coming to the plant making this trip? And I mean, the first time I asked, it was like, no, you're not ready. You know, you need to you need to talk to me in six months from now. And I came back and then it was like, okay, you can come in December. So it's something that you truly have to be ready. You truly have to be prepared for. And I think there's a responsibility to the plant to be given such a great gift and such a great opportunity, knowing the supply of how much exists on the planet and how few people have had access to this medicine. I feel that there is a responsibility as an initiative Bwiti, I feel a responsibility to protect Iboga, 
the steward iboga. And one thing that is embedded into all of Bwiti is once you're initiated into your village, that's your mom, that's your dad, those are your brothers, those are your sisters. You are sending money to them all the time. It's all about reciprocity. So if you think you can just take uh, Abogain and make a product knowing that it came from Gabon, no, you got a whole family over there that's like, hey, where's my cut? You know, like, like, where's my, where's my like appreciation over here? You know, we gave that to you. It's not a one way road. We're not giving, giving, giving. We're not the giving tree over here. We're the reciprocity tree over here. Reciprocity root over here, I should say. The other piece around it is, um, no, there's not enough abogaine on the planet or iboga to supply every single human being and initiate, and not even as many people in probably one state to, you know, and, and what I've seen with other medicines, especially the Sonoran Desert Toad, which is in um, the one region of, um, of uh, Sonora, which is um, like Southern Mexico. And like- We're talking about the 5-MeO DMT. Yeah. So toad, the Sonoran yeah. Desert Toad has um, a, a venom in its glands that contains pure 5-MeO DMT. And when smoked- um, you know, puts you into this complete ego dissolution. And I would say next to Iboga is probably number two as far as most powerful psychoactive medicines. And um, it went through this media frenzy where it was like, there were billboards with people talking about it. And there were magazine articles and New York Times and every major publication. And it was even on, uh, Mike Tyson was talking about it on like sports networks and, you know, and it became this thing. And now like the, the deserts overrun with cartel who have tried to get in control of the supply. And there definitely is a black market. This is Africa. And especially around the Congo Basin, there is um, a lot of, you know, kind of these rogue military kind of cartel-like groups. And um, I would say less so in the heart of Gabon, but there are um, elephant poachers and these elephant poachers have become aware of Iboga and its value on the black market, which is on the black market about 4,000, 4,500 euros for a kilo. And so obviously having that level of value drives um, people to go into the jungle and find it and, and sell it. Yeah. We have to be really careful in how we're speaking about it. I do feel the biggest danger that has happened in um, the years that it's been pop- popularized, especially with that capacity to obtain it on um, different types of illegal sources is people trying to detox themselves at home, which is where most of the deaths have happened. So what I'm trying to say is um, do not try it at home. And we, we do have to be careful, not just for the sustainability, but also because we just don't have the level of sophistication in our culture of really understanding the difference between mushrooms and iboga and you wouldn't want it to be your teenage son or your teenage daughter you know that's ordering it and then something happens oh god absolutely and at the same time it you know if you're well i don't know what you think about teenagers but if your young adult anyway is 
addicted, having, you know, serious addiction problems, this is something to consider strongly, you know? So, so yeah, this is obviously a medicine to be taken extremely seriously, you know, it can change your life in the best of ways. Um, but you have to make sure that it's the best of ways and line, line everything up accordingly. So Trisha, I know we're at time, but I have to ask you what your hopes for the future of the boga are and what your hopes are for the future of your own work in this field. Gosh, I would love to see Iboga accessible. And I think in a psycho-spiritual format, in a ceremonial format that is done really beautifully. And I think that will have to happen in a very slow and careful way because my sense is that there's just not enough information out there and it's just too easy in our underground space for people to think, oh, that's the thing. I'm just going to start serving it to people and, um, and has happened. So I think that as a framework could be established, it would be so beautiful to be in like Malibu, having this beautiful ceremony, watching the sun come up from the ocean or in, you know, just like some beautiful places in nature, like in the um, redwoods, you know, maybe like on this little cabiny retreat and to have people like sitting with the medicine and integrating and doing yoga and doing you know, different types of contemplative practices and integrating. And I do feel that this medicine wants to be in a sacred container. I've experienced it in the clinical format and to have a IV port in your arm and to be hooked up to a heart monitor taped to your chest isn't exactly as sacred feeling as you know the the way that it's intended to be and i think there's definitely a middle ground i don't think everyone is intended to be initiated i think that's a serious commitment and it's a lifelong commitment a responsibility and so i think that a psycho spiritual format would be kind of the way that 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 could really um spread that healing in a good way. And again, again, it, it goes back to, okay, so right now, Blessings of the Forest has established and started this program under Nagoya Protocol, which is a UN protocol for essentially preserving the biocultural heritage of indigenous stewards of these ancestral knowledge systems that are connected with medicine. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be connected with medicine to fall under Nagoya, but um, Witi and Iboga fall under Nagoya. And um, now we're just starting just barely to plant Iboga in a way that it can be sustainable. And knowing that there's this downstream of seven years where that Iboga will be able to be harvested. You know, we have to really think of our staging and pacing in relation to how it's going to impact the culture and the supply. We have to be really respectful of that. So obviously that's like deeply woven into all my vision and my intention. My number one um, prayer is that this culture is preserved because it's the only place in the world that I've been where you see people in nature just living in complete harmony in the jungle in in the original way you know like when you go deep into the jungle they're they're living in the original way and i know there's other places i obviously haven't been to them um but i think that those are the kind of cultures that 
need to be preserved because if we don't, we're going to forget. And um, the the reason we have the medicines is to help us remember. But um, I feel that these cultures um, are also a really important anchor for us so that if we get out of control, we have this this reminder and these these stewards that can can help that. So I think that's a really important. Piece. I like that you said, if we get out of control, that's very, uh, very moderate of you. <laughs> yes. If we get out well, so, as we get out of control. So yeah. Yes, yes. And the future of my work, uh, I mean, I am building a retreat center in the Azores that came to me as a vision. Um, the land, the location, I never picked it out myself. <laughs> and it's like, it's like heaven on earth. It's this subtropical Mecca. I've got hot springs on the land. You know, I was really gifted this vision of, you know, this, this place for healing where the architecture is healing as well as the nature. Oh, it sounds really incredible. And I know last thing that you've just written a book. So this book is called Seeding Consciousness, Plant Medicine, Ancestral Wisdom, and the Path to Transcendence. It took me three and a half years to write it. That doesn't mean it's amazing. It just means that I've never written a book before and it was really difficult for me. Dude, it took me five to write mine. So you're, you're ahead of the game. Really? That, three and a half, not bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, I kind of beat myself up the whole time. I'm like, you're taking too long. I thought it was going to take me like awesome. a year. So... <laughs> Um, and really it's, it's a framework for looking at, again, kind of not that any of this stuff can really be taught. It has to be experienced, but how to orient into that, create that opening of that orientation where we really kind of live that life where we're connected to our intuition and we're connected to nature and really understanding how this fits around psychedelics, whether you want to experience things in an indigenous condition, uh, type of surroundings or tradition. Um, but some people, they're like, I don't want to feel like I'm a contestant and survivor, and I don't want to have bugs the size of my eyeballs, like crawling all over me. And that's fine. I mean, there needs to be kind of a, a bridge between the two. So this book is kind of really those original underlying principles that create that scaffolding so that that wild beastly feminine medicine can you know just find its ways into the right cracks and crevices and purify you and connect you and help you love love and 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 be loved oh it sounds amazing i can't wait to read it thank you so much for this conversation you are a powerhouse in the world of healing and a very graceful feminine powerhouse just <laughs> how we like them really such a pleasure thank you it's been such an honor to to know you and just the work that you're doing bringing together my favorite things sex psychedelics and psychics <laughs> yeah i just appreciate you so much thank you thanks darling <laughs>